Hello fellow adventurers and welcome to the Nerd Lab, where we transform our gaming passion into incredible game designs and learn how to nerd like a boss. My name is Marvin and I'm an ambitious game designer on my quest to develop a cooperative fantasy card game. For this podcast, my vision is to take you with me on this exciting journey and reach the next level as a game designer. Today, I have the honor to talk to a very experienced and very successful game designer. I don't think I know anyone else who has worked with more IPs than he did. Um, this includes brands such as um, Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, Dungeons and Dragons, um, Marvel, Star Trek, X-Men. I think I could go on uh, forever with these, uh, with these brands. Um, but he doesn't just work with IPs, um, let's call them in this existing universes. No, he also um, thinks up his own game worlds. And I think this is super exciting, and that's also something we want to talk about today, um, the differences between working with an IP and um, yeah, maybe starting from scratch. Um, his own creations include games like uh, Dungeon Alliance and uh, Core Worlds. And especially Core Worlds is uh, very interesting because it has yeah, also some similarities to um, one of the games I'm working on. Um, so that's something we want to want to talk about today in particular. So please join me in welcoming um, Andrew Parks. Uh, welcome to the show, Andrew. Hey, Marvin, how are you doing? Thank you so much for having me today. It's a real honor. Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's an honor to have you on the show. And um, I'm pretty confident that um, our listeners will get out a lot of, um, a lot of your experience um, in this show today. So before we start, can you maybe introduce yourself and, um, yeah, Uh, explain the listeners how your journey as a game designer started. Sure. Um, my name is Andrew Parks, and uh, I started designing games. Um, you know, I worked on games throughout my entire life, even as a kid. We do a lot of house rules for games that I played with my friends, and they would also do the same. Um, but in 1998 is when I started um, sitting down seriously to create games And the reason I had the time to do that was because I was a stay-at-home dad at the time. So I was watching my young one-year-old daughter and uh, my daughters. I now have two daughters that I help to stay at home and raise, and they're now 24 and 20. So they have been drafted many times as playtesters, as you can imagine, throughout their lives. And so I started designing games. I designed a Lord of the Rings game. Uh, it was never published, but I met a lot of people in the industry um, after doing that, because I presented the game to the company which had the Lord of the Rings IP at that time, which was Iron Crown Enterprises. And although they would end up losing that license, I ended up becoming friends with all the people at that company. And they then helped introduce me to more people. And we kind of went from there. It took five years for my first game to become published. Uh, and my first game was Ideology. Uh, the War of Ideas, uh, with Z-Man Games in 2003. And uh, Zev, from who at the time was the owner of Z-Man Games, he's the one who created the company, um, Ideology was actually his first board game. And he then introduced me to people at uh, NECA, which was a collectibles company that was starting to do board games. And eventually, through NECA, I became involved with WizKids because NECA eventually bought WizKids. So through sort of this pattern of networking, I've had these opportunities to work on a lot of different games um, over these past uh, 17 years now. 
and uh, it's been a real honor and a privilege. I've gotten to work on a lot of licenses because of NECA and because of WizKids. Um, and I've been able to work on a lot of my own original designs with Z-Man games and then later Stronghold games. And now more recently, my game design company has started publishing its own games, um, uh, including Dungeon Alliance. Uh, my company's name is Quixotic Games. And so we've done Canterbury and Dungeon Alliance. And now we're going to start taking over the publishing duties for Core Worlds, which is a game I designed almost 10 years ago. Thank you so much for um, for sharing that uh, pretty interesting uh, journey with us. So I don't feel uh, too bad now because um, I, my game that I'm working on, my first publication, will hopefully be um, coming out this year. And it took me, uh, let's say, at least two years, maybe more, um, to get to that point. So uh, yeah. it's good to hear some, that someone that uh, is uh, so successful that you um, also uh, needed a bit of time to to publish, uh, uh, yeah, your it, first game. It did. It took a lot of time. A lot. A lot of disappointments occur. I teach a class on game design, and it's one of the things I always stress to my students is um, not only is it difficult to get started, but it never really gets easy after that. Like, you know, even over these years, I was never in a point where I felt like I could just do whatever I wanted to do whenever I wanted to. Even now where I've been able to start publishing my own games, thanks to crowdfunding sites. Um, I still have disappointments. I still have games I would love to do. I've come very close to being able to be able to design and then something falls through. So, It's just part of the whole thing, and it's part of your growth, and it's part of the humility that you need to have as an artist to to meet failure and to accept it as part of the path to success. Because if you don't have that humility, um, you'll never be ready for uh, when critics take a look at your games. Because at that point, you just got to throw your pride out the window because you will be humbled <laughs> many times. <laughs> Well, I can't wait to do that once they have my game in their hands. But uh, that's right. Yeah, it's just part of the whole journey. Yeah. So you mentioned that you had a lot of um, a lot of disappointments um, on your way. Can you maybe um, elaborate a little bit on one or two of them and um, tell the listeners what what you learned from those um, disappointments and special moments? Well, I think one of the first things you realize as a game designer, especially, you know, when I was starting, things were very, very different back then. You know, back in 2003, um, the, the, the hobby industry was really dominated by role-playing games and collectible card games. And the space for high-quality board games in the U.S. Um, was very sparse, even though there were a lot of high-quality European games at that time. Not a lot of them had come over to the U.S. yet. Of course, we had Settlers of Catan and we had Carcassonne and a few others. But this absolute availability of games in an international way wasn't quite there. And so when you go to a game convention, like I went to Origins in, I think, for the first time in 2001. Uh, and I was just shocked by it was all wall-to-wall role-playing games because of the D20 system from... Uh, Wiz Wizards of the Coast had bought Dungeons and Dragons at the time and Magic the Gathering and other collectible card games. That was almost everything that was there um, at that convention. So I didn't have as many games to draw upon. And so when I would have a game be published, 
um, or try to get a game published, I would think, oh, I play tested this game with at least five or six people. This must be a great game. And then you would publish the game and it gets out there and you realize just how foolish you were to not publish, you know, get a hundred play testers because it's never quite ready. And you start gaining, you start seeing reviews, you start seeing ratings come in. This is in the early days of Board Game Geek as well. Um, and you really learn a lot. And your first reaction as an artist naturally will be to push back and to say, they don't understand my game. They don't know what they're talking about and to resist their criticism for the sake of your own ego. But the only way to really grow as an artist is to accept the fact that, yes, there might be one or two outliers out there. But for the most part, what people are saying about your games are very astute. They're coming at it from a different direction. They're not your friends. They're not your family. They're there to give you an honest assessment of your work. And when you begin to pay attention to what is said, then you will make a better product. And that not only applies after your first game, it applies after your 30th game. You have to continuously read the feedback that people are giving to you and realize because the industry is changing. Um, so actually, when Ideology was published, my very first game, the first review that I saw come online was a German review, which I could not read. I thought you'd find this amusing. So I went to Google Translate, which at the time was quite terrible. Um, Google Translate so much better now. So I took the review and I put it in one paragraph at a time into Google Translate, excited to see what these folks thought of my game. Well, they didn't think much of the game as I was able to figure out after a half an hour of using Google Translate. So that was that was a very humbling experience. Um, other times, though, you'll do a game that ends up being a game that people enjoy. For example, we did a game, 300 the board game, back in 2007, based upon the comic books and the movie, 300. And um, my thought patterns were very old school. I had a lot of charts. I had too many dice being rolled. But it was a fun game. A lot of people still like the game. It's not a very high, you know, crit critically acclaimed game. But there's a lot of people who still play and enjoy it. But when I started listening to what people were saying, I learned from that experience one of the most important design tools that I now use. And that is at any moment where you could make the job more difficult for yourself so that you can save the difficulty of the player, you must take that opportunity. If you have to do an extra 10 hours of work so that your players spend 10 minutes less playing your game, that is worth it. And that was one of the problems with 300. And I've tried to implement that in all of my subsequent designs since then. So um, other disappointments I've had were I've worked on games for months and then suddenly was told the game isn't being published. Uh, I had a game, I won't mention the publisher. Um, I had a game once that I had designed for the Watchmen uh, movie back when the movie first came out. I don't remember what year that was, but it was quite some time ago. I want to say around 2009. And the licensor had approved the game and so we had, they had approved our proposal. I designed this game. I play tested the hell out of it. And then as I handed the game into the publisher, the publisher said, oh, um, yeah, the licensor said, nah, we're not really into a board game for this right now. Sorry. And so all and I could have, I mean, I still got paid, which is great, but I could have literally done nothing and gotten paid. They didn't even look at the game. <laughs> oh, that's bad. That was awful. It? That was a bad experience for me. I was very depressed after that. 
<laughs> I hope you could uh, you could use uh, some some stuff from that game later on. A little bit from that game. Yeah, the game was so abstract because that story is so different. It's not a just, Yes, it is. Not really yeah. a superhero. You know, I couldn't like have a, a a game where people are kind of just fighting each other. This was a game that got into really deep ele thematic elements in the story, which is why we were so proud of it. Um but oh well. But it was important in the sense that You know, we learned after that, you know what, don't get attached to anything, especially if there's a license involved. And I know you want to segue into talking about licenses, so uh, we can do that whenever you're ready to. Yeah, absolutely. So um, thanks for sharing that. And um, since you mentioned it with the licenses, can you tell, tell us a little bit how you, how you got the chance to work on, on so many different licenses? So was it more like... Um, The, the companies you were working with, the publishers you were working with were, were um, yeah, addressing you, coming to you, um, asking for, um, for a, let's say, Lord of the Rings game or X-Men game, or was it that you designed those games from scratch with the, with the um, license in mind and um, yeah, then went out there um, and tried to, tried to get the IP rights for, the, for, the, for your creation? Um, one thing that I would definitely dissuade anyone from trying to do is trying to create a game based upon a license and then try to pitch that game. It's extremely difficult to, ha to have that work. In almost every circumstance that I was able to work on a licensed game, I was asked to work on the game because someone had the IP and needed a game done. Um, so the first licensed game I worked on was still one of my favorite game designs of all time, and people are still playing it even though it's a dead collectible card game, is the Nightmare Before Christmas collectible card game that came out back in 2005. Um, collectible card games, at the time at least, were all about fighting each other. But we made a game about building. And of course, we were inspired by playing so many Euro designs. So we said, let's make a collectible card game about building Halloween Town. So the reason I got to work on that game was because, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I had started, I had pitched a game to Zev Schlesinger of Z-Man Games, Ideology. He also did my game Camelot Legends. Um, and would go on to do a game that I co-designed with Jason Hawkins called Parthenon. And so he started to develop a relationship with NECA, NECA, the National Entertainment Collectibles Association. And they had, they would acquire all of these different merchandising rights and would also get the game rights, but weren't doing any games because they did, they do these amazing prop replicas and They do action figures, they're the kind of action figures that are hand-painted and that are just beautiful works of art that are done all in-house. And they're sculpted in-house. And so these are very high-end collectibles that they were creating. But they here they were getting all these rights to these board games uh, for these licenses as part of a package, but they didn't have anyone to create the games. So Zev was friends with the owner of NECA, and that person asked Zev to round up some designers and to create some games based on some licenses. So Zev said to me, hey, Andrew, would you be interested in making a collectible card game based upon The Nightmare Before Christmas? And The Nightmare Before Christmas happened to be one of my favorite movies of all time. I had never designed a collectible card game before, but I had helped playtest collectible card games for publishers. I had helped a little bit playtest the Star Wars collectible card game, and I had spent a lot of time playtesting the Lord of the Rings trading card game as a volunteer. So I kind of knew, and I had played a lot of them. So that was my first one. And then after that, basically through Zev, 
Um, and eventually Zev got too busy to be involved with that anymore. And I was just directly working with NECA. They would say to me, hey, we've got another license. We've got um, Office Space, the card game. Um, we've got uh, Harry Potter game, Gremlins game. Um, so can you work on these games for us? And I was like, yeah, of course I will. That would be great. Harry Potter was really challenging to do because the licensing requirements on that was through both um, J.K. Rowling's uh, uh, folks and also through Warner Brothers. So we had two levels of approvals to go through. It took a very long time to get through that, but the game ended up being worth it, I think. Um, But then after that, so this is around 2009, 2010, uh, NECA then purchased WizKids, most famous for its Hero Clicks and for its Mage Knight Clicks game before they did the Mage Knight board game, which is more famous now. They had a, a collectible miniatures game called Mage Knight. Um, and so I thought, okay, now they've hired a bunch of designers. I was just freelancing for them. So that's the end of that. Um, but what happened was the folks at WizKids contacted me and said, hey, you know what? You worked on uh, Harry Potter and so on. Would you be interested in doing anything else for us? And I said, yes, definitely. Yes, I miss doing these licenses. So they asked me to do a Hunger Games game. Um and then from there, they would contact me every once in a while. Hey, we need you to do this. Do you have somebody to do that? Well, they had plenty of designers, but they had so many projects coming in, they would just throw stuff my way. And then we got to work on Star Trek Attack Wing, which was a huge game based upon the mechanisms that were in the Fantasy Flight X-Men game. Those mechanisms were licensed by WizKids to make a Star Trek version. And after that, then WizKids, you know, that was a very, very successful game. Um, and so we started being able to work on Dungeons and Dragons and Justice League and X-Men um, and, and all kinds of things because, you know, we had sort of built that relationship together. Uh, the only licensed game that I ever requested was after working for so many years with WizKids. I said, look, I'm a total Marvel nut. I have an idea for a Marvel game. Um, can I pitch this to you? And they did. I pitched it to them. They they pitched it to Marvel. Marvel said okay, and then we were able to work on Marvel Strike Teams. That's the only game I've ever done licensed game where I actually proposed the game before I was asked to work on a specific license. That sounds like like some awesome opportunities that uh, that you had there, and I know a lot of game designers who would uh, who would love to work um, on one of those uh, yeah licenses. And um, is there anything that you um, could give them as an as an advice if you in today's situation what would like to work with some of those major brands and IPs? Um, what would be your your advice to uh, maybe a newer designer who has not that many contacts in the industry um, to to get that kind of opportunity that you had in had in this time? Well, the number one thing to do would be to create a game. That's not a licensed game, not based on a licensed property and pitch that game to a company that has licensed properties, especially a company that is open to new designers. So, um, for example, WizKids is a perfect example of this. As life's ironies would have it, after Zev sold Z-Man Games to Philosophia, he stayed on there and worked for some time. But then he eventually left and then he started working for WizKids. So it all comes back around again. So Zev is currently the director of board games for WizKids. So he's very accessible 
especially at a convention that's not super busy like Essen or Gen Con. These are not good conventions to go and pitch your games because people are selling games like crazy. They don't have time as much as they would like to to talk to new designers. But if you go to a, a convention like Origins in Columbus, Ohio, or Protospiel, or one of these sort of uh, much more laid back conventions, you could probably set up a time to talk to uh, someone who is looking for new board games. So for something like WizKids, um, you would set up a, an appointment by email or just contacting him on BoardGameGeek. You would contact Zev Schlesinger and say, hey, can we meet? Can I show you my game? Can I show you what I can do? And he might say, uh, I'm not really interested in that game. But if you show that you can design a game, you could then say, well, you know, do you? Th- what would you do to improve this? Is this just something you don't need right now? Are you looking for designers for other projects? And so on and so forth. And that's how you sort of start networking and um, you find your way. But the main thing is to approach companies that have licenses and show them a game that's not involved with a license. Because the last thing they're going to want is for you to say, I have a Marvel game. Because the odds of them taking your game and going through all the routines that are involved with getting that that game approved um, are very slim if, you, if, there's, if you're someone they haven't worked with before. Um, the other thing that I would really stress to people if they do get a, a game published through a publisher is, first of all, don't expect to make very much money. It's not about the money. Um, don't fall in love with your game at all. You are not there to protect your game. You are there to present yourself. You're selling yourself, not the game. Um, so don't worry too much if the person says, I'd publish this game, but I would change the theme to X, Y, or Z. Just do it. Just do it. Be, work with them because your most important step is to get your first game published um, and to show that you're willing to do work. And that's the third thing. That's the third piece of advice, which is be willing to do everything and anything to help get that game published. I know people who have gotten their games approved to be published by a publisher and the publisher has asked them to do extra work and the person has said, what are you going to pay me? That's a lot more work than what we originally agreed that I would be doing. That is the biggest mistake you could ever make. Just say, yes, give me the work. Don't ask for money. This is your baby that's being delivered to the world. Get it out there because once you get that first game out there, then people at least know you're capable of completing the process from beginning to end. That means a lot. Um, so anyway, that's a lot of different things I threw at you there. But Yeah, but these are awesome, ad- awesome advice. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks a lot for, for sharing that. And um, you mentioned that you had to go through several um, approval processes, especially for, um, I think it was the... Um, The Hogwarts oh, game, the yeah. Harry Potter game. Yeah, so maybe um, tell us a little bit about the differences between working on, on an IP game and or license game and a game that um, you're completely um, designed yourself with the entire world around it. Um, I guess you have more freedom and stuff like that, but um, maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on the differences between, between um, working on those kind of games. It is a very different experience. Um, I really love to build worlds. So there is sort of this freedom that you have when you're creating a world. Um, there's also this sort of terror because you know, no one knows that world. And no matter how much thought you put into your world, 
no one's going to know it when you first introduce it to people, unlike an IP. Um, and so one of the worst things that you can do that I've discovered is to overload people with too much information about your backstory for your world. You want to give them just enough of a taste to say, this is my world. This is what makes it different from other worlds. And this is one of the things that I think worked out really well with Core Worlds. Because we had such a talented team of artists working on it, we were able to sort of present at a glance the type of world this was and what made it different from other worlds. Um, another thing I was able to do was to compare it to other IPs that weren't really, that games hadn't been made of yet. And to my knowledge, haven't been made yet. I could be wrong about this, but one of the games that I always mentioned in relationship to Core Worlds 10 years ago was Isaac Asimov's Foundation Trilogy. Um, uh, I said, in the Foundation Trilogy, you have this concept of, of, a, of a dying uh, capital world, and in the outskirts of this world, all kinds of terrible things are happening. In our world, it's a little different because you're the terrible people making the terrible things happen, because um, you're the barbarians attacking that 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 flailing empire. Um, but that was helpful because people were like, yeah, I know Foundation, I know those those famous books, I can see sort of where they're coming from. Now, the downside of being reticent on a lot of details is that sometimes people may think that your world is very generic. This happened to me in the beginning with my second big world that I created, which is Dungeon Alliance. With Dungeon Alliance, I tried the same strategy that I did with Core Worlds, which is just to present just a taste of that world. The problem is that the name Dungeon Alliance seemed generic enough on its own um, that people just thought it was just generic fantasy, even though I, of course, had an extremely elaborate backstory for that world. People were not able to really perceive that because I had presented it as such a from such a simple vantage point. So, so I guess what I'm getting at here is that you have to put a tremendous amount of thought into creating your world, but you also have to put a tremendous amount of thought into how you first introduce that world to players. You could give too much information. You could give too little information. Finding that balance is going to be a difficult chore. And how do you how do you find that balance? Let's let's stick with um, with um, for example the Core Worlds game. And um, how do you deliver your new, uh, freshly created uh, world to the players in, in a game that um, is basically um, only happening on cards? So one of the things that was exciting about Core Worlds was that it was I was creating it in the early days of deck building. The only two deck building games, um, and of course I'm talking about deck building, not collectible card games. So Dominion and Arctic Scavengers were the only two um, deck building games that I had played before I started working on Core Worlds. As it turns out, others would come out before Core Worlds came out in 2011, and some of them had some of the features that I had been working on. In particular, the game Ascension had moved from the piles of cards that you see in Dominion, the you know sort of a stack of the same card, to having a draft area where you're drafting cards, and that that draft area is very dynamic and fluid. That came out in Ascension, but we had designed it in Core Worlds. So when Ascension came out a year before Core Worlds, we were, you know, a little bit disappointed because we're like, oh, I can't believe that we were thinking we were going to be the first ones. 
Um, so, uh, so, uh, there's that element. Um, but what made it exciting about working on one of the earliest deck builders was the fact that we said, instead of having all the cards out at the start of the game, let's make it so that the decks are progressive so that instead of any particular card coming out early, there will only be cards from the outer rim of the galaxy. And then we'll go into the frontier and then we'll go into the industrial worlds. And what that allowed us to do was to create, since there were five sectors, to create sort of five chapters to the game. In the beginning, you're only getting some little starfighters and a couple of infantry troops. Later, you're getting more advanced robots and vehicles. Eventually, you're getting these huge capital ships. And that by itself allowed us to transform a card game into a kind of a story, even though it's not really a storytelling game. But because you were following the chapters of these different progressive um, drafting decks, uh, it allowed players to automatically feel like they were following a story because now they all started off as this bunch of ragtag soldiers. um, And by the end, they were emperors who had capital ships and all these worlds under their command and advancements and amazing tactics and all these things. So they were sort of creating their own story within my world. And I think that's one of the biggest keys to a successful IP is that you don't force players to play your story. You let players create their own story in your world. Um, You don't force their decisions. You don't try to make certain things happen. You say, here's a world that I created. Go mess it up. Have fun. And I think that happened in Core Worlds, and I, and I think it happened in Dungeon Alliance as well. Yeah, I, I really like that. And um, I think I recorded the whole episode about that, uh, that topic of uh, emergent narrative in board games. Yes. Yeah, no, it's um, a huge thing. Yeah, and I really, and I really like it. Um, if, if a game supports my own imaginarity and um, lets, lets me create this, um, maybe this one-time world that's only existing when I play through this game with my friends at this evening and the next time I play it, it is, uh, can be a completely different experience, uh, different world. Um, and I like games that, that allow me to, yeah, to, to play games like that. Yeah, the replay value is very important to us. We want you to play the game so many times and then like on your sixth or seventh play, see a card that you've never seen before um, without having to buy an expansion. So, you know, that's one of the things that we always strive for. One of my ultimate design goals, which I have not achieved yet, is to create a game that creates so much fluidity that people will play sessions that are entirely unique that no one else will have experienced um, by the combination of cards and the decisions that they made um, without it being seeming completely random or, or bizarre, but like a real story that they can record and tell people about. And people can say, I have no idea how that happened for you. I have never seen anything like that in one of my games. That is really the goal. And the danger of that as a designer is um, it takes so much control away from me, but and therefore makes it a much more difficult task for me. Um, but that is my goal as a designer is to create a tool, um, a world tool that allows people to create their own stories that are unlike the stories that other people have using that same set of cards. 
Yeah, that's a that's a great design goal, um, and I can I can totally see why you haven't achieved that yet because it it sounds incredibly difficult for me. Um, you you probably have to reduce the boundaries of the game um, and let people um, come up with uh, stuff there on their own, and yeah, that typically means that not only very great uh, moments can happen and great pieces of uh, of uh, narrative can come out of it, but also maybe not not the best ones because uh, uh, it uh, you if you open uh, your game to 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 that kind of uh, open rules or maybe um, open narrative it can also go into the the other direction if uh, the players probably are not as uh, as well prepared to yeah to 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 play with the game and move it into the right direction so yeah that's i mean that is definitely the challenge and of course the the goal would be you'd have to you'd have to fail quite a few times because the goal would be to make it so that there is no right direction. Um, all that's important is that the person is creating a narrative that's satisfying. So the only real danger would be that a narrative is not satisfying. So even if they end up failing in their quest or whatever, if the narrative were satisfying to the person, then that would be enough. Um, at least that's what I hope. <laughs> so we'll <laughs> see what happens. I'm yeah. a long way away from that, um, that's for sure. Yeah, but I'm looking looking forward to it already. Cool. So you mentioned um, a little bit uh, core worlds and how it um, how it is played, especially the um, the drafting mechanic compared to the more static piles or marketplace that you have in um, in games like Dominion. So I really really like I like like that aspect of the game because uh, I'm a huge fan of drafting. Mm-hmm. I did uh, three three episodes on uh, drafting as a mechanic and the different games how they use drafting and stuff like that. So um, that's really it's it's my it's my most uh, favorite um, game mechanic. And I think you you were responsible to um, to introduce it more or less to the to the deck building genre, which is a, a beloved genre by many people and i think that was was a great a great step forward to to have this dynamic piles in the middle of the of the game so um before we dive a little bit deeper into core worlds can you maybe um quickly explain the game from the rules perspective so that the people um know what um yeah what we are talking about when we move forward Sure. Yeah. I mean, with core worlds, the idea is that you're a barbarian empire. And I use the term barbarian not to mean like crazy barbarian with a sword, but barbarian in the same sense that the Romans always referred to everyone who wasn't a Roman as a barbarian. So you you are an advanced space civilization, um, but you're out on the edges. You're beyond the galactic realm uh, that's that's ruled by the supreme monarch. And so in order to build yourself up in power, you're going to go forward and conquer worlds. Um, and those worlds will have more energy for you that you can use to uh, draft cards and so on. Um, one of the things that's a little bit different between core worlds and other deck building games is that instead of playing your hand and and then just discarding your whole hand, you have a hand of cards, but there's a tableau in front of you that we call the war zone. So in order to to make use of a card that you've drafted, you not only have to draw it into your hand, but you have to actually spend an action point and a certain amount of energy to deploy that card into your war zone. Um, The good news is that at the end of the round, any cards that are in your war zone that you haven't used stay there. So when you shuffle the rest of your hand, you have now uh, uh, 
temporarily at least, banked these cards until you choose to use them. And then when you eventually have put together the right combination, then when a world comes up and that world's going to require a certain amount of strength to conquer, in this case, a certain specific amount of fleet strength for the battles in space and ground strength for the sort of mech robot battles on the surface. And um, sometimes it's very difficult to achieve the right combination to conquer a world. And if you just had to draw those cards into your hand, it could be very frustrating. So in this case, you can deploy your cards um, uh, intermittently over the course of several rounds until you're ready to get, to get that combination together. It's great if you draw that combination in your hand, um, but if you don't, then at least now you can plan and say, I'll put this card out now and I could use it now. But I'll hold on and keep it there, hoping that I'll get another card, which will sort of create a combination. So these cards that you're placing into your war zone are units like vehicles, robots, infantry, capital ships, and so on. Um, when you conquer a world, it doesn't go into your deck. It stays permanently in your um, war zone, and it provides its energy permanently. However, any units that you used to conquer that world now leave play and enter your discard pile. So they'll now leave your war zone until you draw them again. Thematically, the idea is that you've ex they're, they're exhausted, they need to rest, they need to be repaired if they're ships or robots or whatever. Um, so they've done their job, they've, they've worked on that world, now they, they, they rest, they retrain, they have to maybe uh, resupply, that kind of thing. Um, so you're constantly getting different combinations of units. And if I use a lot of really strong units to conquer a world, then my opponents know, well, at least those units are going away. So I can't do that again right away. Um, then there's strategies that let you get around that a little. There's some cards that let you retain a card in your war zone after using it. So that will trick some of the players. Um, the players don't always know which worlds you can conquer because even though your units are face up in the war zone, you have tactic cards that are played directly from your hand that can change the circumstances. So they don't know exactly what you're capable of doing. Um, so every turn you're basically either deploying units down into your war zone or using those units to conquer a world or drafting a card from the center that's not a world, a new unit, a new tactic, for example, a new hero, and putting that into your discard pile. And you do that for um, 10 rounds. You go through five different sectors. And at the end of the 10th round, you count up all of the empire points that you've created in your uh, deck. And the core worlds are worth the most, and they're worth a variable amount based upon other things that you've added to your empire. And whoever has the most empire points wins. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the short uh, rules for this uh, game with us or the, the, the game flow. And um, I really think the game is uh, is pretty pretty good. It's uh, especially since it is. Uh, I think it it came out ten years ago or so. Yeah, that's so, right. It just had its. Uh, I think it just had its ninth anniversary in December. So it'll yeah, be awesome. This December will be the tenth anniversary. <laughs> yeah. So what? Yesterday I stumbled over over a post on Reddit. I didn't. I didn't look for it, but just stumbled over it. And uh, the title of the of the post is "Does Core Worlds um, Stand the Test of Time?" Mm, I haven't so, seen that. <laughs> so that means people are still uh, interested in the game. Um, 
and asking for um, I don't know new adoptions or so. So we will probably talk about that a little bit later. But um, what uh, someone What I mentioned there is that I will talk to you today and um, ask someone uh, if he wants to um, to um, yeah, throw a question at you. Cool. And yeah, someone wanted to do that, and um, it was mainly about the um, the let's say the core of deck builders. So um, he was talking about that most deck builders are just vehicles uh, for yeah shifting output randomness to a different mechanism. And um, that you as a player can control this uh, output randomness a little bit uh, more than with dice, for example, by um, yeah deciding which kind of cards you want to put into your into your pile. Um, and what he really really liked about your games was that um, you are able to to keep some of the cards in between rounds, as you just explained. Um, instead of uh, throwing away your entire hand like you do in, in many other deck builders like Dominion, for example. So putting a little bit more um, choice into, into players' hands by doing that. And um, the question really at the end was um, about the, um, the evolution of, uh, he calls it input randomness. I, I personally think of it like distribution mechanic, how you distribute certain assets of the game like cards or i don't know points or whatsoever um and what inspires you to to lose use this different uh this luck in different ways yeah and um, where do you think that luck in games um is headed in the future or is there maybe anything that you um especially want to try or that you haven't so he was asking about the luck using luck in different ways sure um i mean i think that One of the things, I mean, I, I am not a particularly lucky player when I play a game, so I'm usually trying to find ways to reduce the amount of luck, um, particularly on the other side of making decisions. So in general, I when I, I like to have randomness. I'm not a great chess player, okay? So I like to have randomness in my games. But if I have to choose between having randomness before I make a decision or after I make a decision... I'm always going to try to make a game where the randomness happens before I make a decision. Because then, even though I may not be able to make the decision uh, that I would most like to make, at least I'm making a decision and I, there are consequences for my decision um, that are being brought about that are more or less predictable. The problem with having randomness happen after a decision is no matter how carefully I plan for something, um, if I have to roll a die or just flip a card or whatever afterwards and I fail, then in most games, I've simply wasted my time um, and all that mental energy. So I certainly have plenty of games that have randomness after you make a decision. I've certainly done war games like Assault of the Giants, for example, and the attack wing games are very dice heavy. But my personal preference is to make a game where there's a variable world being presented to you. And you're picking and choosing the aspects of that world that you want to engage with. And then sometimes that world throws something at you and you have to deal with it. Um, but for the most part, once you've made a decision, you know what's going to happen. So with, with Core Worlds and with Dungeon Alliance, I try to make sure that for the most part, you're dealing with the randomness of which cards you draw. Um, but there's hand management and there are ways to set up and plan for those combinations that really the joy of playing 
a game with combinations is achieving those combinations. And if you achieve a combination because you drew that combination into your hand, that feels okay. But if you achieve that combination because you took a chance and you held onto a card and then got the other card, and the thing that makes that combination really stellar is something that you've helped bring about, like a certain room has a certain creature in it and you waited to attach that creature until you got this combo and then in you went and then bam, you took it out as in Dungeon Alliance. There is something very exciting about that for players, um, very, I think, intellectually invigorating. And so that to me is the type of randomness that I always want to see. Um, deck building for some players, um, some players have become a little disenchanted with deck building when it's used all by itself. Um because it begins to become more about, as you said, I'm drafting cards, then I draw my cards, flip them, they do their effect, they're discarded. I'm waiting just to get that combination that I want to find that sweet spot. Um, but when you take deck building and you attach it to other mechanisms, which we did a little bit in Core Worlds, but we did a lot more in Dungeon Alliance, I think that's the thing that's becoming so much more popular now. And I think you're probably familiar, since it's been the hottest game on Board Game Geek for weeks now, with the game Dune Imperium. Um, I love that game, and I think it does such a beautiful job. Uh, it is basically combining worker placement with deck building. And it does a beautiful job of combining play on a board with deck building. Um, that I think that that's the, and it's such a popular game, I think that's the direction things are going in, is using deck building as a tool rather than as an end unto itself. Um, so I think that's where I see mechanisms like deck building going because they do give you the, the possibility of controlling randomness, but not to entirely control it um, so that your decisions are being based upon random elements before you decide rather than after. That's a that's a great answer, and I really like your your concept here of uh, using the randomness before you make the decisions. Um, I think this is something that I um, that I enjoy most as a player, as well. Um, for example, just uh, I don't know rolling dice, and then the dice uh, determine what kind of um, resource I have for this for this turn. For example, this is something that um, that goes into that direction. Right, um, yeah. And then players have to choose uh, how they use the results of the dice to distribute the resource that they have for this round, as a very simple example. Right, like War of the Ring, for example, does that so brilliantly. Yeah. Um, and um, one more question with regard to, um, to Core Worlds. So you mentioned that there are some kind of um, worlds that you get at the end of the game. Um, that pretty much um, distinguish or give you the the um, a lot of victory points. For example, at the end of the game, when you can achieve certain things, if you can get them. Um, so, how did you um, did you come up with that idea um, of having this uh, these pieces in your game that yeah really have a big impact on the strategy how you play the game. Um, because you, you can build towards uh, being that guy who has the most vehicles in his deck or so. Yeah? So this right. really determines your strategy. Um, but the cards that determine that strategy, you get them just at the very end of the game and not at the beginning. So maybe you can um, tell us a little bit more about um, 
why and how you implemented that um, so that the cards, the strategy def uh, forming cards are at the end of the game. So one of the things that we were thinking about when we were working on it is, um, you know, the importance of having an end game bonus, giving you sort of a narrative that that unites you through these different chapters that we talked about. And other games, you know, that, that clearly influenced us at the time were Puerto Rico because they have those end game buildings that you can't really afford until you get pretty far into the game. Um, but at least you know that they're there. Um, and in core worlds, you know that those core worlds are definitely going to come out, but you're going to have to fight for them. Um, so that was one thing we were thinking of. Another thing we were thinking of is the, um, the card game version of Puerto Rico, San Juan. In San Juan, you draw cards. You could get them in the beginning of the game, but so much is dependent upon if you draw those cards or not. It's one of my least favorite parts of San Juan, and I love San Juan. I've easily played it a thousand times. It's a game that I, we would play four or five times a night, every single night, um, for a couple of weeks. I mean, we just played this game nonstop. So, but one of the things that began to um, disenchant us with San Juan was the fact that you had to draw this card and some of them were end game cards were a little bit more powerful than others. So we said, all right, rather than having to draw the card, let's have the cards come out sort of in a random sequence at the end. Now that rule actually doesn't work perfectly in core worlds. And we've had to make some adjustments to it after the game first came out, because what would happen is based upon the turn order, you'd get into a situation where a person has been gathering up all the vehicles in the game And someone conquers the core world that they were waiting to get before they do simply because of the turn order and the order in which it came out. And this became a real problem for core worlds. So we created a variant called the Consoles of the Empire variant that allowed two people to jointly rule a core world. If you conquered it right before I was going to conquer it, then I could also conquer that same core world and we would both gain the points for it. Um, you don't have to split them. You get the full amount. Um, that helped a bit with that situation, but it was one of the things about core worlds that unnerved me a little bit, especially in the beginning when there were only six core worlds. Now that there's more core worlds in the game, it's less of an issue, but it was an issue. Um, and it did not work perfectly. And we did, you know, we did a lot to kind of work around ways to fix that because we, um, did not play test that sufficiently. Um, so we worked on that quite a bit and I think we, we addressed quite a bit with the other expansions and with, and with the variants that we created. Um, but that's kind of how that came about. Okay. And I think personally that Core World was really probably a bit ahead of its time back then. Um, Thanks. because, yeah, because it, um, it really incorporates a lot of, uh, very, interesting changes and adaptions to the deck building genre that you can see in 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 many deck building games that come out nowadays but you haven't seen them back then when when deck building started to become a um a famous a famous uh, mechanic or kind of games and um i really think you you created a very very interesting piece of uh, um of combination of uh, of mechanics and um, also uh, a theme there so it's a pretty good game and um, do you have any plans to um, 
to um, add additional things to the game, expansions or so, bring it to the to the modern age? Um, and what would you change if you do? So we have a lot going on for Core Worlds. Um, the first thing is, as people have, uh, may have seen some news that's been on Board Game Geek, um, the original Core Worlds that I designed was published by Stronghold Games. Um, and it was... Uh, The contract was for 10 years, and so we signed the contract uh, about a year and a half before the game came out. And so when the contract was coming up, um, I talked to them about the possibility because they hadn't done a new expansion in a little while. And so I, you know, I asked them, would you like to do something new with it? And um, or would I be would there be a way for us to work out that when the contract expires that you know, would you guys allow me to use the graphic design and the artwork for the game if I started publishing the game or expansions for it on my own? And they were super helpful and they were really into helping me out. And they've really smoothed this transition for me and more importantly for the fans of Core Worlds because um, they we were able to work out something. Uh, Stephen Bonacore has since retired from Stronghold Games. Um, and so before he left, he and Travis Worthington, who owns uh, indie uh, games. Uh, uh, he now owns Stronghold Games as well. He, uh, indie, indie Borden Games, excuse me. Um, he and Steven worked out a way for me to be able to still use that art and that graphic design and become the main publisher for Core Worlds. So this uh, year, we're going to be publishing two games that carry on the legacy of Core Worlds. And they're both going to be introduced on February the 1st, at 12 noon Eastern Standard Time, if you don't mind me giving a little plug here, uh, as a Kickstarter. We're going to be doing a Kickstarter for two games. Um, the first is a sequel to Core Worlds. So the story of Core Worlds, if you remember, that we just mentioned, the galactic realm is collapsing, and you are trying to invade and carve out your own empire out of the decaying ashes of those civilizations. So at the end of the game, you've probably conquered one, if not two core worlds. Um, you've built advancements. You've done all kinds of things to build an empire. But that's when the story ends. So in core worlds, empires, we're taking a completely new set of mechanisms and continuing the story. So in core worlds, empires, each of you starts with an empire, um, the same characters from the other game. And in fact, there are rules that will allow you to take some of the elements from playing a game of core worlds and bring them into Core World's empires. So some of the worlds you conquered in that first game, some of the advancements that you built, some of the heroes that you drafted. Um, it's not a requirement. Uh, Core World's empires is a standalone game, and you can play it completely on its own without ever having even seen or heard of Core Worlds. But if you do own both games and you're in the mood, you can actually play the first game and then play the second game right in a row and continue the story directly. Um, or you could just play a game of Core Worlds Empires, and it starts, you have five worlds already, one in each of the sectors, including a Core World, and you've got a player board, and it uses worker placement mechanisms with cards in order to simulate um, the management of your empire. And you can just be working on the resources of your empire, or you could focus on conquering new worlds and adding them to your empire. You can visit each other's worlds. And you can make use of each other's resources with your ambassadors. So it creates this very rich story um, of how to manage your space empire and everyone else's. You're not directly at war with the other empires because you sort of had this treaty that helped you conquer 
in the first game, but you can come to blows in certain worlds. There are neutral worlds that you can fight over, and maybe over time there could there can be events that come out that have you fight over some of each other's own imperial worlds. Um, so that's been something we've been working on for like five years. So that's very exciting for us that we're coming to the fruition of this great project, and that will be um, the, the focal point of our Kickstarter on February 1st. But the other game that we're introducing on February 1st is an expansion to the original Core Worlds, and it's something that people have been asking with almost from the day that Core Worlds was first published. And in fact, the desire for this sort of an expansion is probably what has helped keep Core Worlds popular because it has to do with a solo expansion for the original Core Worlds. Solo gaming has ramped up in popularity so much, and the last few years it's crazy, and then this in 2020 with the coronavirus, even more so, this desire to play games solo. So Core Worlds Empires, which I was just talking about a couple seconds ago, rest assured that may be a worker placement game, but it comes with a solo version. So you can play with one to five players. But Core Worlds Nemesis, which is the new expansion that we're creating, allows you to play the original Core Worlds with or without any of its original expansions in a way that it's a solo game against a Nemesis AI-driven player. Um, And I would never, Core Worlds probably would not have retained its popularity today had it not been for fan-made solo variants that have kept Core Worlds even more popular than it would be if it was just a two to five player game, those fan made variants have, uh, that's the whole solo community has really kept core well, core worlds moving along all these years. And so we thought this was a great way to repay that solo community, which is to come out with our own solo version of the game that works, as I said, with or without any of the other expansions that have come out, you can mix and match. Um, So, so that's core worlds, nemesis and then core worlds, empires, they're both going to be part of the Kickstarter. If you get Coral's Empires, you get Coral World's Nemesis for free. Um, so that's like the big value of the Kickstarter is that you'll get Coral World's Empires and Coral World's Nemesis for the price of just Coral World's Empires. If you want just Coral World's Nemesis, it's a little bit cheaper, um, but you're only getting that one game. Um, so both of these games will be made available on February 1st, and then we hope to have them published by the end of 2021. Yeah, that's... Uh... Great news for all the uh, fans out there, and it must be must be great for you to see fans and other people uh, putting so much effort into into your own creation um, and moving it forward by building their own um, solo variants of the game. That must be must be very nice. It's nice. It is. It's another type of being humbled, but it, it's a good way of being humbled because you really realize that you know once you've designed a game that game really doesn't belong to just you anymore. That game now belongs to the community and I wouldn't have it any other way. Um, and that community not only lets me know the things that aren't working and the things that I need to fix, but that community also is capable of fixing some of those things on their own or just coming up with their own variants or modes of play to scratch their own itch that they have for the game. And those Variants have in turn influenced me. The the solo variant I have designed would never have reached its final form if I did not look at and examine and 
the other solo variants that players have made and see why is it that these games are why these variants are so popular i have to be i had to be very careful to make sure that even though i want this to be my own original variant i had to make sure that i included the essence of what made these variants so popular um so that even though this is very different than those variants i tried to include some of the ex- exciting ingredients um that existed in these other variants that had been created by players so they in their own way they have actually helped design this game with me yeah that's that's great and um i have heard a lot about the um, solo player market and how important it is to um, have solo player rules for your games um, if you if you put it out there if possible um so but especially for for your kind of game like this uh, deck building game and drafting game um, a lot of it's um Beauty really comes from interacting with other other players as well. I mean, drafting is always a, a mechanic where you fight over uh, certain resources. Um, so I would be interested to to learn how you move that kind of aspect of the game to a um, to a solo player variant where you probably need some kind of AI um, doing that. So can you maybe or are you willing to share um, a little bit of how the um, the solo um, player variant works for the game? Sure, absolutely. The thing that you mentioned was the absolute most important thing to me. Um, if the AI was simply grabbing cards at random, it would never feel like Core Worlds. Because in Core Worlds, the essence of the indirect interaction that you have with other players um, is all about paying attention to their empires. What have they put in their war zones? What have they drafted that I don't see right now, which could be in their hand right now? Which kinds of units are they trying to draft in order to increase? And what kind of units do they are they missing? In other words, they have a lot of space. I know they're going to need a lot of ground. So how am I going to simulate this with an AI player without micromanaging the AI player? Because that's the other danger is that I could become so immersed in trying to make it feel like I'm playing against another player that the game ultimately becomes... Uh, me playing two different players against each other. Um, I don't want to manage his his war zone. I don't want to manage his energy and and all those sorts of things. I just want him to go very quickly and provide me with enough information that I know probably or in some sense what he's going for. So what what I did to achieve this was I created AI cards that have levels of different commands on them. When you when it's the time for the AI player to go, the nemesis. When when it's the nemesis empire's turn to go, you flip a card from its deck and there's one, two, or three commands on there. And the nemesis tries to do the first command. If he can't, he does the second command. If he can't, he tries the third one and so on. If there's no commands that he can do, then it runs away. So if he's supposed to draft a card, the card will tell him to look at the cards he's already drafted to make that determination. So it might say, what is his most prevalent card type? Draft that card. So you look, because you've already laid out the cards that he's drafted. There's actually a neat little uh, uh, headline bar at the top where you, you, where you carefully store the things that he's drafted so you pay attention. And I see he's drafted a lot of infantry. And there's an infantry out here. So he's definitely going to draft that infantry. If there's a tie, then I get to choose. So maybe I can choose something that I don't necessarily want. So let's say he had drafted two infantry and two starfighters, and those are the most that he's drafted. So I get to choose which one to give him, because maybe I want that starfighter, I'll have him take an infantry. 
Um, sometimes it'll say he drafts the least prevalent card type. And this is sort of to represent when a player is drafting so much of one thing and they realize, oh, I've neglected this part of the game. I really need to get something like this. Other times it just says he drafts the card that has the most empire points, in which case he's doing that just to get points for the end of the game. So that's how that aspect works. For conquering worlds, this was really important because a person can't just conquer a world. They have to put stuff in their war zone first. So what we did in that case was we had a world, we had cards that say conquer a target world, meaning if the nemesis has targeted one of the worlds that are in the central zone, he automatically conquers it. But if there is no target world there, then we're going to target a world. So therefore, he can't have more than one target at a time. And the idea is he's targeting a world is meant to represent he's put units into his war zone that are capable of conquering a particular world. I'm technically paying attention to that so I know which world he wants. If that's a world I want, I better conquer it before the next card comes out that says he conquers his target world. If I'm lucky and I put units out, I might get it before him. Or if I was already ready, then I can conquer it and now he no longer has a world that he's targeted. So when the next one of those cards comes out, he now has to target another world. So I have thwarted him. In fact, as I've been playtesting the game, I found myself in situations where I had an extra moment. I could have conquered a world, but I said to myself, you know what? The nemesis hasn't targeted a world. So I'm going to spend an action to draft, hoping that he targets a world. And when he targets a world, if it's a world I can get, I'm going to screw him over and, and take it just like I would do against another player if I was nasty. The good news here is the nemesis won't flip the table. That's always a good thing. <laughs> so you can do things to screw the nemesis, and of course the nemesis can do things to screw you over. So how we handle discovering which core world he's going to is the very same way that we have laid out all of the different cards that he's drafted. We lay those cards out next to what I call the core world's prime cards, and these cards tell you the core world that's associated with those units. And when there's several units out there with the core, uh, excuse me, when the core worlds come out, the card will say, target the prime core world. To, de to determine what the prime core world is, you look and see what he's drafted. And you see what will give him the most points. He's drafted a lot of infantry, um, more than anything else. And Wotan is out there, which is the infantry world. He is definitely going to target that world. And if I'm going to stop him, I better be ready to stop him now. Because if that card comes out again, then he's going to draft it and he's going to get that core world. And he may get two or maybe even three core worlds if I'm not careful. So um, he also drafts prestige cards and, and other things like that too. So all along the, the main goal here was to give you that sense of, of a little bit of frustration and sometimes anger when, the when he does something because he doesn't do it randomly. You know, sometimes you say to yourself, okay, I can do this and get the thing I want, but he might get this thing because he's already targeting that world. Or I can say to myself, he hasn't targeted any world, so he cannot conquer one right now. Because just like in a regular game, if you have no units in your war zone, I know you can't conquer anything. So I say, all right, let me draft a card now. Um, the other piece of the puzzle that we were kind of excited to come up with, and this was based a little bit on what another variant had done, is that if you're playing with Galactic Orders, if you remember the Galactic Orders expansion, whenever you play a card, you put a faction token on the Galactic Order that's affiliated with that card that you just played. 
And those tokens can either be spent for some sort of benefit, or they could remain and give you points at the end of the game. So the way we did that for the nemesis is the nemesis doesn't play any cards. The only cards he plays are his special little nemesis deck. Um, So when the nemesis drafts a card, they get tokens. But the number of tokens they get depends upon how early they've drafted that card. So if they draft that card in Sector 1, they actually get three faction tokens on that Galactic Order. If they draft it in Sector 2 or 3, they only get two tokens. If they draft it in 4 or 5, they only get one token. And this is meant to simulate the fact that when I draft a card early in the game, I'm much more likely to play that card multiple times and therefore gain multiple tokens from that card. Whereas if I draft a card late in the game, I'm probably only going to play that card once and get just one token. Um, So in the beginning of the game, he's laying down a lot of tokens and it's very intimidating. But as the game continues, you now have an idea of which galactic orders you can compete with, which you probably shouldn't compete with, and so on. And... um, you start playing your cards and you're getting tokens out too. And so you might match the number of tokens or, or come close to the number of tokens. Um, and, uh, and in two player core worlds, galactic orders, if you have second place, you don't get any points. So if I can get ahead of him by one token, not only have I gotten more points, but I've taken those points away from him. So you really feel like you're going against someone who's smart when you're playing. And we've, gotten that through a, a lot of playtesting. I've been playtesting a lot. Sometimes I would just lose every game ridiculously. Other times I would win every game. So I've had to tweak and balance and do these different things to get to the fact that it's a challenge. Um, I don't win every game. I don't lose every game. Um, and we also added three different modes of play, um, standard, advanced, and expert, so that if you find that you are winning a little bit too much, you can switch to a higher level, in which case the AI is doing certain behaviors that are much more um, hurtful to you. And that's basically how we created that game. Yeah, awesome. Um, You got me very excited about it. Um, Especially, what I I like especially about it from what you explained is the mix of um, hidden information and uh, visible information so that I have probably a good clue about um, the tactics or what he's up for with this targeted worlds and so on. And I can use this in, in within my strategy, but there, there are also um, kind of hidden information um, that I cannot um, predict to 100%. So I really like that combination. And I think that sounds like a really, really good um, solo version and um, another game mode for, um, for Core Worlds. I, I hope people enjoy it. I'm definitely looking forward to show up. We're going to actually put the rule book up this week. <laughs> cool. So um, you got me excited. Um, you probably got a lot of listeners excited. So um, would you would you tell us um, how we are able to, to follow you, to um, um, maybe register for the Kickstarter campaign or so? Um, I will put the links into the show notes, but um, it always helps to, to tell the people um, how they can find you. Yes, the the best way to follow us would be to go to, if you're on Facebook, would be to go to our our Facebook page. I don't have the Kickstarter up yet because there are certain things that I want to make sure are in place before I uh, send it for approval with Kickstarter. Um, So, uh, but if you go to our facebook.com slash quixotic games, then... um, and you follow us there on Facebook, then you'll get lots of information. There's already a whole bunch of information up 
excuse me, not uh, right now uh, on that Facebook page. The second thing to do would be to go to the Core Worlds page and subscribe to the Core Worlds games. We've got pages up for Core Worlds Nemesis, Core Worlds Empires, at least the, the basic Core Worlds game. If you subscribe to any of those games, you'll be getting a lot of information, especially this week. We're putting a bunch of stuff up this week. People have been asking for more. We just revealed the cover for Core Worlds Nemesis this week where people are really excited. Got a whole bunch of thumbs up uh, at Board Game Geek. It was very exciting. And uh, the rule book will be coming out. And then some some uh, uh, we'll be getting some reviews out on the Core Worlds Empires uh, this month. So definitely the two biggest places to follow us are on Board Game Geek at the different Core Worlds pages and also on Facebook at facebook.com slash quixotic games. There's no hyphens or dashes or anything like that, just quixotic games. Okay, I will definitely put that in the show notes as well. And of course, uh, our own website is is www.quixoticgames.com and you can also get information there as well. Okay, cool. So... Before we before we end this episode, we have recorded now over over an hour, and I want to respect your time, even so I could talk much longer to you. So, <laughs> is there one final advice you would like to to give to um, aspiring game designers, people that are just starting out, maybe uh, didn't didn't publish their first game yet, um, and they probably just started their journey uh, in the middle of the design process of their first game? So, is there anything that you would like to to give them as a final advice before we end the show? Sure. And the biggest thing is don't give up. If this is something you're doing because you love it, then do it because you love it. And if you happen to get published, that will be the next step. But you're never wasting your time when you work on a game. Even if that game never gets published, you're learning a lot as an artist. It's like a sketch. You know, Leonardo da Vinci used to sit down all day and just draw hands. Um, you normally don't get to see all those little sketches, although they did have them in a museum uh, about 20 years ago. But the reason I bring this up is he did those hands and thought nobody was ever going to see them because he sketched and made mistakes. Um, so nothing that you create is a waste of time, regardless of whether I've had so many games that I've designed, even after I'd become a published designer, that didn't end up making it so that people could see them. Um, and that's okay because I learned from them. So don't give up. Hang in there. Network like crazy. And by network, I don't mean just online. Once we get past COVID, go to the smaller game conventions where you know there's going to be publishers. Meet them, talk to them, um, get to know them, offer your own help. Say, hey, you know what? Can I play test games for you while we're here at the convention? Then they at least get to see what kind of a player you are, what kind of a person you are. And the next time you see them, they'll say, hey, I remember that guy. He, he play tested some games with us. He's, he's, he's a nice man or woman. Let me ask them more about what it is that they're designing. So be a good person, be willing to work really hard for no money, network like crazy, um, and don't give up and don't think you're ever wasting time when you're working on a design, no matter what happens to it. That's great advice. Thank you very much, Andrew, for being a great guest on this episode. And I wish you all the best for, for your upcoming Kickstarter campaigns. Thank you, Marvin. Thanks so much for giving me the opportunity to come on. Okay, to uh, all the listeners, thank you very much for listening. And until next week, keep shooting for the moon and nerd like a boss. Goodbye. Goodbye.